I heard just the other day that Alex Trebek is thinking about retiring from Jeopardy. Now, so I'm going to try my hand this morning at hosting Jeopardy, and this is the final Jeopardy, and the category is the Bible. You ready? Other than Jesus' resurrection, this is the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. Time is beginning. You got 30 seconds. Mention one miracle other than the resurrection mentioned in all four Gospels. If I'm going to go a little faster because some of you go to sleep in 30 seconds, all right? <laughs> if you said, What is the feeding of the 5,000? then congratulations, you are correct with that. So I want you to turn to Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're going to look at verses 30 through 44. Jesus performed dozens of miracles, but the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one that appears in all four gospel accounts. And I believe one of the reasons that it is, uh, is that it's because God wants us to pay particular attention to the lesson of this miracle. In fact, I know that we've all heard about the five loaves and the two fish. Don't make the mistake of visualizing five loaves of Sara Lee bread and two nice-sized catfish. Don't make that mistake this morning. The language used, especially in the book of John, to describe this unknown lad's lunch indicates that the bread is what you and I might call today as mini muffins, little small muffins there. And the fish were really tiny fish. They were like sardines. Now, I've had sardines one time, and one time was enough, all right? If you like sardines, that's fine. I, I, I just tell you, sardines, you can put mustard on them. You can put ketchup on them. You can do whatever you want. But I'm just telling you, that fish is for the seagulls, all right? I'm just telling you, that's not my cup of tea whatsoever there. But they, what would happen is these little small fish were so small that they really just could be spread upon those little mini muffins and just give it enough of a fish taste there for the young lad. Now, you might think of it as an Israeli Happy Meal. And in fact, just... Just enough for one little boy, but as you go through the drive-thru today, they're going to ask you if you want to supersize it or not. Now, that's not what happened here, and it kind of, I guess that's what we're going to see. Jesus really supersized it for the young lad there. So we begin reading in verse 30, and it says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him that all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And so they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognizing them. They ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted. And it's already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and to buy themselves something to eat. 
And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. He responded. And they said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, we have five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish, excuse me, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and he broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people, and he also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied, and they picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. I want to remind you that this was a tough time for Jesus. In fact, his home church, you remember, we read where his home church, his, his synagogue there had rejected him. And even the citizens of his, his town, Nazareth, his hometown, tried to stone him. And then Jesus got word that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded by Herod. And, had, and, and the man that, well, by the man who would, Jesus would later call the fox, Herod Antipas, there, and God, Jesus knew all that was going to happen. He knew everything that was taking place as a man. That Jesus grieved for his cousin, his friend, and his forerunner. He also, he and the disciples, the scripture says, they were physically tired and they were hungry also. And so Jesus tried to get away to get some rest. And I could have gone down that path and trying to encourage folks to to get away and, and to try to get some rest sometimes. And so, but they got into a boat, the scripture says, and they sailed north. But the crowd followed them on the shore. They tracked their progress. And in fact, when they landed on the northeastern shore of the lake there, thousands of people were waiting for them. Now, Jesus could have gotten back in the boat. He could have sailed away. But instead, the scripture says he had compassion on them. And with that, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so in spite of his fatigue, he started teaching them and it became the end. It was supper time. It was the end of the day. And they were faced with this impossible task. And the task was, how do you feed 5,000 men and their families in a remote area? If you recognize anything here in this scripture, you recognize that Jesus was an organizer. In fact, he broke them up into groups into groups of hundreds and in groups of fifties there. Now that is really the only way that you can function as a church. And I'll say that today we have churches of all sizes and shapes in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have very small churches. We have medium-sized churches. And then we have large churches. And I will say in every church, no matter what size, you need to break them up into groups. And that's why we have Sunday school, and that's why we have Bible study groups there. Now, uh, in the uh, years ago, they used to want you to have very small groups, and and in Sunday school, and now it's kind of changed a little bit there because people have changed, and so we have churches who have groups of hundreds and groups of fifties in Sunday schools there. But we break up into small groups here, and if you're not part of a Sunday morning Bible study group. You're missing out on a miraculous feeding of the Word of God that happens each week here at the church. 
And so I would encourage you to be part of a small group in 2019. Jesus always taught a spiritual lesson with every miracle that he performed or with every parable that he taught there. And Jesus was teaching a spiritual lesson within this miracle. Later on in this chapter, in chapter 6, he gives the test. And guess what? The disciples failed the test. In fact, look at verse 52. We didn't even read that, but look at verse 52. And it says there, because they had not understood about the loaves, instead their hearts were hardened. Do you understand? I believe that the disciples missed the whole point of the lesson that day. Do you understand the lesson of the loaves and the fish? In today's lesson, I'm going to try to give you three life-changing lessons about what to do when you face an impossible challenge. You're going to, if you haven't faced one in 2018, you were liable to face an impossible challenge in 2019. And so number one, never measure a problem in the light of your own resources. Never measure your problem in the light of your own resources. Can you see that little boy who got, well, who could have enjoyed his own lunch there, but he's with Jesus, and what a story it must have been when he was able to tell his parents that, hey, look, Jesus took my lunch and fed thousands and thousands of people. I can just see this group of boys. If Jesus used your, your sack lunch at school tomorrow, you, you went running home at the end of the day and said, the whole school was fed with that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, I just want you to know, they, they would just be telling everybody, mom and dad and grandparents and everybody else. And let me say that when, uh, when we face a problem, our immediate reaction is reach into our pocket and we count our change. Well, how much do we have? Well, how much do I have emotionally to handle this? How much do I have physical currency to take care of the problem to meet the crisis that's within my own life? Peter Lord was the pastor of Park Avenue Baptist Church in Titlesville, Florida for over 30 years. In fact, uh, I'm not sure he's still alive. If he is, he's 88 years old there. But he, he w has written several books. And Peter Lord says that there are three kinds of people in every church whenever there is a crisis or challenge. First of all, Peter says that there are the feelers. They go by what they feel. How do you feel today? Second, there are the figurers. They, they say, here's the problem, and here's the calculated solution. But then, fortunately, he says, every church also has a group of faithers. They trust God. Are you, let me out of those three attitudes, feelers, figurers, and faithers, which category do you fit in today? Some people say, letter A there, I feel that I should do this. In other words, Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Here's the problem. We have several thousand hungry people, and so what are we going to do? Now, I know that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do already. This was just part of the test for his disciples there. And some of the disciples felt like they had an answer. They said, Lord, it's late. 
And because it's late, let's just, and the people are hungry, let's just send them on their way so that they can go to their neighboring towns or in their own town and buy what they need to eat for supper there. And I, they, had, they thought they, they had it figured out there. They feel like that was the best thing for them to do. They felt panic and fear that, uh, that a hungry mob might turn on them, and so they wanted to send them away. Do you let your feelings be your guide? If you let your feelings be your guide, are you someone who goes by your gut feeling? I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say, well, preacher, I feel like we as a church ought to do this or do that. Or my gut feeling is telling, my gut's saying to do this. Do you judge a solution, your solution or, or a situation, whether it feels right or whether it feels wrong? Now, let me just say something here very carefully. You need to be careful because your feelings can mislead you. In fact, your emotions are the shallowest part of your, of your soul. Your emotions. Letter B, are you a person who says, I figure that we could do this. We could do this. Of all the disciples, we know in John's gospel that the Philip was the apostle Philip. He was a CPA probably in the group. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, need, I like CPAs, all right? There, I couldn't live without one come April 15th there. Now, I love numbers if you are talking about the fourth book of the Bible. I love numbers, all right? Other than that, numbers, and, and I look at them and study them and all those kinds of things. But Jesus asked Philip in John chapter 6, he says, how are we going to feed these people? Now, in Mark's gospel, it doesn't mention Philip there. But in John's gospel, he turns directly to Philip and asks him, how are we going to feed these folks? Now, can't you just see Philip? whipping out his abacus, and he starts to figure this thing out there. He says, 5,000 men, then, and wives and children. I, Jesus, that's about 15,000 people there. Multiply that by $2 per person, the cost of a meal purchased in bulk there. And then divide that amount by one denarii there, the amount of money, that was the amount of money that a man made working one full day. Now, Philip turned to Jesus and said, Lord, the numbers don't lie. In fact, it would take a man working nearly seven months to feed this crowd. Now, let's put it in our day and time. Let's translate that in today's dollars. Think about what your monthly salary is and times that times seven. That was a lot of money. That's a lot of money today, but that's also a lot of money in Jesus' day as well there. Philip had it figured out, and that's the way a lot of people approach the challenge or crisis. What is this going to cost me? I've seen it many, many times through the years. We've had, in churches that I've pastored, we've had some unsurmountable money uh, money needs to, to raise raise money for building projects or even just budget. And if we need, say, $100,000, I've had people say to me on many, many occasions, Preacher, that means that if we need $100,000, we just need 100 people to give $1,000 each. Now, when you figure that, that in two-thirds of our church, I'm not talking about any other church, I'm talking about two-thirds of our church, 
and members never show up and never give anything. Two-thirds of the members of this church never show up and never give anything. And many of our church members are children and youth as well. And some of our folks in our church are rather poor. And I would just say to you that $1,000 to those folks is, is, would be difficult for any of them to give. Now we have, at the same time, we have members who have been blessed financially, and the $1,000 would, would not be much of a sacrifice for some of those folks. Now let me give you a motto to live by and to think about this morning. This is a motto that I always promote when we're trying to raise a large amount of money, and, that, and this is this. Equal sacrifice, not equal gifts. Listen to that again. Equal sacrifice, not equal gifts. I've had people say, well, preacher, you know, we have people who give a lot of money. We have people who give a little bit of money. Let me just say equal sacrifice, not equal gift. And when you think about that today, we always have a figure in the church. Letter C. But praise God, there's always some people who say, I faith that God wants to do the impossible. And that's not a typo at all there. Faith is used here as a verb there. I love being around faithers. In fact, they don't fake it till they make it. They faith until God makes it there. And they say, here's a big challenge, preacher. But we don't have enough resources. But our God is bigger than any challenge he owns the cattle on the on a thousand hills and the gold and the silver, the oil and the gas beneath those hills. And if God wants us to do this, then it will be done. Now, where God guides, he always provides. Where God guides, he always provides. I believe that this little boy in our story was a faither. Andrew was often seen bringing people to Jesus. And in John's gospel, we learned that it was Andrew who brings the little boy to Jesus. He tells Jesus that this little boy has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, barley was the coarsest and the cheapest flour to make bread. As one country preacher said, it was barley, even bread at all. All right? You'll get that in just a moment, okay? There. Now, if I get, get this, Andrew <clears throat> stopped talking right at that point. And I think Andrew would have passed the test right there. But like most of us, he got into trouble because he kept talking. And he said, but how far will that go among so many? Here, Jesus, we got five little barley loaves and two little sardines over here. But how far is that going to go there? And Jesus said, well, that's plenty. And that's Living, are, and I want to ask you, are you living by your feelings? Are you living by your figuring? Or are you living by faith? It was a lady living in a retirement center, and one day a new resident of the retirement home was this nice-looking older gentleman whose wife had died a few months earlier there, and the lady saw him at the cafeteria table, and she walked up there with her tray and said, Can I join you? And he said, Well, sure. So she sat down, and they began to talk, and they had a delightful conversation there. And finally, she just started staring at him, and he said, 
ma'am, is there something wrong? And she said, no, excuse me, I, I couldn't help staring at you because you remind me so much of my third husband. And he said, really, how many times have you been married? And she smiled and she said, just twice, actually. <laughs> now, I call that a profession of faith, amen? <laughs> Number two on your outline, a little becomes much in the hands of Jesus. Here's this little unnamed boy who is brought to Jesus with willing hands his small lunch. It was little in quantity, but when you look at the Greek word in John's gospel, it indicates that these were small rolls and tiny fish, but the boy gave it to Jesus, and Jesus used it as the basis of the miracle. And now this boy took two steps of faith that we all need to take if we want to see God's power released in our lives there. Step number one, under letter two, transfer ownership of everything you have to Jesus. Transfer ownership of everything you have to Jesus. This little boy had come prepared. His mother probably packed his supper for him, and he was the rightful owner of these fish and these, these loaves. And he could have snuck off behind a rock and enjoyed his food privately. But the text doesn't say whether Jesus asked the boy for his lunch or if the boy just offered it to Jesus there. Regardless, the little boy had handed ownership of his lunch to Jesus Christ. God already owns all the wealth in the universe, church. In fact, you and I don't own anything, as I said earlier. He has just allowed us to manage a part of his wealth for a short period of time, but God wants us to transfer ownership of all that we have back into his hands. Now, let me say God is the owner of the Heinz home that we live in. Not the mortgage company, not us, but God owns the home that we live in. God owns our home, and we want him to use our home for his glory there. Some of you have been kind enough to invite me into your new home or into your new business and pray a prayer of dedication, giving it to God. When Have you ever dedicated your home to God? Have you ever dedicated your business to God there? Consider all of your assets and all of your abilities. Have you come to a place where you've said, God, this belongs all to you and I transfer ownership of my treasure and my time and my talents? You know, it's almost declaring a form of spiritual bankruptcy when you do that. In fact, when the devil comes and says that I'm going to take away everything that you have and you can just smile and say, go ahead, I don't own anything, it's all God's anyway there. And, or, or when the devil says, follow me and I will give you everything you want. And then you can smile and say, no thanks, my father is meeting all of my needs according to his riches in glory. Now the little boy didn't say, Jesus, I'll give you one fish and I'll give you two loaves. I need to keep a little bit for myself there. He gave it all. And let me ask you, will you say all to Jesus, I surrender? There's another step that every one of us need to take. Step number two, Jesus transforms when you give him and gives back more. Now, Jesus took the fish, he took the bread, and he turned it into an all-you-can-eat buffet, the scripture says there. It fed 5,000 men and their families, and the Bible says that they were all filled or they were all satisfied there. Now, I had the pleasure of raising a little boy in my home. 
He's no longer little. He wasn't little very long anyway. And I'm not real sure what two little sardines and five little bitty muffins would have gone towards filling Jordan up. I just want you to know. In other words, he might have said, well, if that's all I've got, that's good. But I, he would have been in the cupboard. He would have been asking his mother for something to eat just very shortly there. But because this little boy gave all that he had for, to, to Jesus there, guess what? He got to eat all that he wanted and was satisfied as well there. Here's what Jesus does when you surrender everything you have and you are to him. He takes what you give him. He blesses what you give him. He multiplies what you give him, and then he gives it back to you, and now it has the power of God's power in it when it's placed back into your life there. There's a principle in the Bible that what you give to God, he gives back to you with a blessing in it there. There's a beautiful story in John chapter 12 about Mary, the sister of Martha, who came to Jesus during a meal. She took a pint of very expensive perfume and she poured it on the feet of Jesus. You know the story there. The cost of the perfume was an entire year of wages. But then Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair there. Now Judas, if you remember the scripture, Judas objected saying that that perfume could have been sold and the money given to feed the poor. Now, But Jesus said that Mary understood what none of them did. She was anointing his body for burial. Now, she knew that he was going to die in just a few days. Mary gave it all to Jesus. But what do you think Mary carried with her when Jesus left? Have you ever thought about that? I was thinking about that this morning. She carried with her on her hair and on her hands that beautiful fragrance And maybe it lingered for days. My wife called me the other day, and she was working the concession stand at the ball game the other night, and she dropped a can of or a jar of jalapeno peppers there, the the sliced ones, and she smelled like jalapeno peppers uh, there. And uh, in fact, our new little puppy uh, likes to come up and lick and bite and all that. She took one little sniff of Marsha and left her alone for the rest of the night. So we have figured out how the dog not to bite us there. We just put jalapeno juice all over our hands there. But can you imagine that's exactly, she smelled that perfume for days. She gave it all. She received a blessing in return. Have you followed the example of the little boy? Have you transferred ownership of all you have and all you are to Jesus. You say, I don't have much to give there. If he can take a couple sardines and a few muffins and feed a multitude, little becomes much in the hands of Jesus Christ. And then number three, God will create a need in your life to demonstrate that he can meet it. You need to get this one, church. Many of us in this room have had a teacher or a professor walk into the classroom and this is what they say. All right, class, clear off your desk except for a pencil and a piece of paper. And what do you think that they're going to say next? It is now time for a little pop quiz. I just always loved it when they did that in school there. But if you studied the assignment material, you were probably pretty confident that you were going to make at least a decent grade there. But if you hadn't cracked the book, 
It was a pretty miserable experience in taking those pop quizzes there. And there are many times in your life where Jesus is going to test your faith. And that's what he was doing here. Jesus created a situation that was humanly impossible to solve. The feeding of the 5,000 was a lesson, and the test was the upcoming storm. You could continue reading after verse 44. There was a storm that was going to take place later on. The disciples were in the boat there, and they failed that test, the Scripture says there. In the middle of the storm, they had just seen God do something impossible. And here in the middle of the storm, they gave in to fear. And when it comes to impossible situations and challenges... I want to ask you to look into three directions with me today. Letter A, there's always hindsight. Looking back and seeing that God sustained you. It, is, it has been said that hindsight is 2020. I want you to think back to a time when you went through a, mirror, a terrible crisis or a challenge in your life or in your family's life there. Think about it for just a moment. Some of you are in it right now. But while you're in it, you wondered if you were even going to survive it. But here you are. God sustained you. God was faithful to bring you through it. And in the Old Testament, there was a riddle about problems. And it comes in through the life of Samson. Samson was the original Hercules or Incredible Hulk. He was a strong fellow there. There was a vicious lion attacked him one day, and he literally tore the lion into pieces with his hands, the scripture says. And later, the birds and the animals had a prey had stripped the carcass down to a skeleton. And some bees built a, a beehive inside the skull of that lion's, lion's skull there, and inside that lion's head. And out came that skull was sweet, sweet honey. In fact, Samson later walked up and reached into the lion's skeleton and grabbed a handful of sweet honey. And later he gave this riddle to his enemies. In Judges 14, 14, and in your outline it says 14, 1, but it's 14, 14. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. The lion, a threat to Samson, had actually ended up as a source of a meal for him. The strong lion gave him something sweet. And that's a parable about problems. As you pass through life, you will be able to look back onto the skeletons of your past problems. And when you see those skeleton memories, you're reminded that God sustained you. And you find the sweetness of God's word and his presence as, you, as the hindsight. That's hindsight. Letter B is foresight. Looking forward to the perfection of heaven. Now, it may be difficult for us to know what's going to happen tomorrow or next month. For a child of God, our ultimate destination as a child of God is secure. No matter what happens this afternoon, no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens next month or next year, your destination is secure. And one day, you're going to be with Jesus for all eternity. And the thought of that always brings a smile to my face, even when I'm going through tough times. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. 
There was an old hymn penned by a man named James Black in 1893. And the line, the words go like this. And on that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the sky and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. You see, hindsight is easy. Foresight is glorious, but here comes the insight, letter C. Looking through your current crisis to see Romans 8, 28. It is when we're right in the middle of a problem or a crisis. That's when we need God's insight, and you need it now. Vance Havner used to say, when you're up to your neck in alligators, it's not time to convene a symposium on how to drain the swamp. And I think he's absolutely right. When, boy, if you're up to your neck in alligators, you're not really worried about draining the swamp there. You're really about trying to get out or try to kill the alligators. Now, God has given us help and hope in the midst of our challenges, and he wants us to walk by faith. And he wants us to believe that he will carry us through the crisis and that we'll get to the other side and that we'll be able to claim Romans eight twenty eight like those other problems in the past there. There's a... a I would say one of the most powerful promises of God is Romans 8, 28, where it says, We know that all things work together for good, for good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Church, do you believe that? I hope you believe that today. God isn't working on some things. He's working in all things, the good things, the bad things, the ugly things, and the result is always going to be good according to the Scripture there. Now, none of us can sit down and eat a full cup of sugar. Well, some of us might. But just to sit there and eat a raw, just a full cup of sugar, or eat a couple of raw eggs, or even try to force down a couple cups of dry flour. None of us could just do that, right? If you could do that, that might be a good game to use on Wednesday nights over in the youth program, all right? No, don't do that at all there. But a good baker can... Mix all of those things up, pop it in the oven, and in a few moments, there's a, the result's a delicious cake. My wife this past week made this very fluffy, very moist chocolate cake. And we're down to the last little bit of it. So we'll see who gets it this afternoon when we get home. And what we've been doing is we've been just slicing a little bit at a time, about a quarter of an inch. And just getting it so it just lasts a little longer. Now, let me tell you there, God is the ultimate chef. He can take all the bad. He can take all the distasteful, ugly experiences of your life, and he can mix it, and it will become a few good things in your life. And then he mixes those up, and he pops them in the oven of his omnipotence, and what pops out is something really, really sweet. Years ago, there was a violinist who was scheduled to perform a concert using the priceless Stradivarius violin. The concert hall was packed, and when he carefully removed the, the case from there on the, on the stage, there were oohs and there were ahs from the audience as they saw this priceless instrument. For the next 15 minutes, that musician thrilled the audience. He made the violin sound as beautiful as a mother singing a lullaby to her child. In fact, he could make it sound like the laughter of a child and the weeping of a woman. And the people sat on the edge of their seats. 
And they drank in every heavenly note. And as he finished the first section, the audience jumped to their feet and began to clap and applaud. And to their surprise, at that very moment, in their horror, the violinist took the instrument by the neck and he smashed it onto the stage. And everybody gasped there. The musician walked off the stage and he returned carrying another case. And he opened it, and he removed the violin, and then he spoke. And he said, this is the real Stradivarius. What I was playing was just an ordinary $50 violin that I bought just around the corner at a pawn shop just a few hours ago. I just wanted you to know that it is not the instrument. It is the artist who draws the bow across the strings that makes the music. He resumed the concert, and but this time the audience ignored the instrument and they focused on the ability of the musician. That's just like us. We're all just a bunch of cheap fiddles. Really. And when we think we're just this insignificant meal of fish and bread, Maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you feel like you're whipped. Maybe you feel like you just are nothing to God. But let me remind you, just in those moments, remember that you are in the hands of the Master. And your life, my life, can become something that is very beautiful and something that is very lasting. But you have to place your life in His hands. You can't just know about God. you got to know God. You got to invite him into your life. You got to invite him into every area of your life. You say, Preacher, I can't afford to give. Well, you can't afford not to give. Because God says, If you give, I'll give it back to you. I'll give it back to you, pressed down, shaking together, and running over. And yet, some of you walk through this life a defeated life. I see it every, nearly every day at this church. Somebody rings that doorbell and needs help. And when they walk in, the story is always different, but it's always the same. They walk in and they, they are their heads are down and they are needing help. And we want to remind them as they leave, if we can help them, we do. If we can't, we won't. But we can always pray with them and we can always share Christ with them. But I want you to to pay attention for just a moment this morning as we close. And that is this. I want you to bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes. As the musicians are coming, I want you to look at your current situation. Where are you? You can look at it in your own life. We can look at it in our church's life. And we can say, man, where are we? Are we in a crisis? If we are, have we given everything to God? Have we given it to Him so that He can take it and multiply it? Add it, do whatever He needs to do in in all things. All things work together for good. Who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That means you. That means me. Do you love Him today? Have you ever said, I want Jesus to be my Savior?
I want to invite him into my life and I want him to live through me. I want him to take my few sardines and my few loaves of bread and make them into whatever he needs and turn it into a sweet, sweet sound. Preacher, I'm just a $50 fiddle and I may not even be that on some days. But get, will you give it to him? Will you place your life so that he can play beautiful music in your life? Father, we come to you today and we know that this message, we could have gone a hundred different ways with it. And we've heard it preached so many times. And so, Lord, I pray that at this moment that something that was said, something that your word touched their hearts and that they'll keep it in the year 2019 at the forefront of their lives. So, Lord, we pray that you'll take the foolishness of preaching now and draw all men to you and women. Lord, we love you. It's yours. Do with it this invitation as you would is our prayer in Jesus' name. As we stand this morning and as we get ready to sing, if you need to come and pray, turn something over to the Lord. The altar's here for you. If you need some prayer in your life, you come. This is, this is your time as we sing today.